I want to share with you now a feel-good story about how policing is providing a positive impact in the community. I want to tell you about the Out on Patrol Society. This is a peer-supported organization for LGBTQ plus members of law enforcement, and they focus on community engagement, charitable work, and education. So, I want you to hear an interview that I recorded last week with Chris Burkett. Now, he is a constable with the VPD, and he's also the president of the Out on Patrol Society. And Chris explained to me more about what their organization does. Out on Patrol, it's kind of been an idea in the making for years now. Um, For me personally, uh, the discussion, it started back in 2017 when I attended a fundraiser for an initiative called Camp Out. Um, It sends LGBTQ2S plus youth to camp. And that was back when I was a sheriff at the time. And I attended with a group of my friends from the VPD and the RCMP. You know, it just it gave us an opportunity to come together as LGBTQ2S plus members of law enforcement, uh, while also, you know, raising money for a worthy cause. And we got to discussing the idea because uh, a few of the others had sort of brainstormed this. And um, just the idea of bringing, you know, LGBTQ2S plus members of law enforcement together um, when how we could come together and really help the community at the same time. Um, and it's also sort of like our ideas for peer support, because although, you know, there's been huge progress made in relation to LGBTQ2S plus rights, there's still members who don't feel comfortable talking about how they identify. And, you know, my hope is without in patrol, we can provide them with a space to express themselves, but also demonstrate how, you know, departments are supportive of us being who we really are. So just given the current climate, it's uh, obviously there's been a lot of, um, progress made in relation to that, but there's still work to be done. But at the same time, because of all the progress, this is just sort of the perfect time to actually start something like this up because we've had nothing but positive support from uh, from all of our departments. So yeah, that's kind of the background there. Yeah, I think that's really an interesting point that you raised there, that it's helpful for members within the policing community, but it must also be helpful for relations in the general community. You know, this is a society that serves two functions. Yeah, absolutely. Because like, not only are we doing the peer support aspect, like we're, we're a nonprofit. So the, the focus is also going to be on community engagement, charitable work, education. Um, like right now, we're really focused on building our membership base, which I'm, I'm actually happy to say we're almost at 100 members in our first couple of weeks. But uh, due to the pandemic restrictions, we're kind of limited on what we can do. Um, but once things start opening up, we'd love to like host events like community engagement events where, you know, we give community members the opportunity to engage with law enforcement in like a, a positive and welcoming environment. Because typically, you know, when people deal with us, it's usually in times of crisis or it can often feel more negative than positive. And we really just want to get out there in the community and show like, you know, we're just people too and uh, give them an opportunity to talk with us when there aren't uh, sort of all those other things at play and really just get to know us as people and members of the community. Um, also another huge thing for me, like what I would love to do is go into schools and do in school presentations because um, like when I was in high school in the closet, I knew I wanted to be a police officer, but I'm worried are there gay cops? Like, if there are, how are they treated? Things like that. Like, a group like this would have been huge for me uh, when I was in high school if they came in and talked to my school. So that's another outreach uh, initiative that we're planning on uh, bringing forward once, you know, the pandemic restrictions start to be lifted. That's so true, eh? Especially in career fields like policing, where I think sometimes there can be this persona that it's this 
ultra macho type of job. And as an LGBTQ plus youth, you may be wondering, you know, is there a place for me if I want to go into this police force or into this workforce? Uh, or will I be rejected if I do go into this workforce? Yeah, absolutely. And like, that was a huge barrier for me. And I remember just having a lot of sort of apprehension there because I knew I wanted to get into the final work, but I didn't know if there were gay members or if if I came out of the closet, would that hurt my application process? Would it it make um, my you know work life more complicated, but I'm obviously happy to say that giving coming from the position I'm in right now, I know that it's not an issue at all. But I also I recognize that I'm really fortunate because obviously this day and age in a very progressive city like Vancouver, you know, the circumstances are kind of in my favor, whereas that's not the case everywhere. So that's why I think an organization like this is still really important because there are communities out there I'm sure where members don't feel comfortable talking about who they are or being themselves, you know, and like, I personally know members, even in the lower mainland, that they, they're not out of the closet because they, they just, they feel like there still is this stigma and, you know, every, everyone's story is their own. I consider myself very lucky, but I also know like when I first got hired by the sheriffs, um, I had just sort of started coming out of the closet at that point to friends and family, but I chose to go through the sheriff academy in the closet because I didn't want to be labeled like the gay guy, you know, um, after I, the academy, I, like I came out, told my friends uh, everything and, you know, I have nothing but positive experiences. And since then, like flash forward six years to when I went through the police academy, I was honest from the get go, no issues. And like, I'm really happy to say that I, I don't believe that there's an issue there. If, if you want to be honest about who you are when um, you get into the final work. But again, we just really want to be there as sort of role models and examples to show people that, you know, it is an option to, to be your true self, you know. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, I want to ask you as well about the evolving and ever-changing and sometimes tense, sometimes not, relationship that the VPD or policing has with the Pride Society and with the Pride Parade, for example police not being welcome to walk in uniform in the Pride Parade. What are your thoughts or what is the society's thoughts on that debate? Yeah, well, like as individuals and members of the LGBTQ2S plus community, like obviously we're disappointed by the decision. Um, At the same time, as police officers, we do recognize that people need us to take a step back during this extremely difficult time and just offer the community a time to grieve and heal and you know, build a positive relationship with us. So prior to our launch, uh, we just launched on May 26th. Uh, prior to our launch, we reached out to the Vancouver Pride Society just to notify them about our new society. And like, we're hoping to hear back from them on how we can engage in a process of building a positive relationship with the community. Um, you know, we, we would love to work going forward, work collaboratively with Vancouver Pride and have some meaningful dialogue with the community so we can create that safe space where you know, we're welcomed by the community and there isn't this apprehension there. Um, ideally, we'd like to build a positive relationship with Vancouver Pride, similar to the uh, relationship Surrey RCMP has with Surrey Pride, uh, which they've been building over the past 21 years. Um, in the meantime, we've reached out to some other Pride societies and we're looking forward to just sort of fostering and building relationships in various communities because, you know, Alpha Patrol is a multi-jurisdictional organization. Um, so we're supporting members across the country, not just Vancouver. Uh, so yeah, we're, we're really looking anywhere to just make those positive relationships and engage with the community. Final question for you. For anyone who's interested in learning more information, perhaps they want to join your organization or they want to support you in any way, how can they find more information? 
Yeah, so you can visit our website at www.outonpatrol.ca. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Out on Patrol and uh, Instagram at Out on Patrol Society. But yeah, go to the website, uh, check it out. Basically, if you are employed by a law enforcement agency, um, either as a sworn member or civilian member, then you're you're welcome to apply for membership. But you don't have to identify as LGBTQ2S plus to uh, apply either. Like we welcome allies. We think that they're also really important and um, in showing our LGBTQ2S plus members that you know, they are accepted and this isn't an issue for them to be who they are. So. Uh, anyone employed by any of those agencies, they can go to our website, just look for more. Uh, if you're looking to just partner with us as a, a community group, we're also happy to do that. You can go to the Contact Us page. And, yeah. Well, Chris, thank you so much. It was such a pleasure being able to chat with you. Yeah, thank you. I really appreciate uh, you taking the time to reach out to us. Constable Chris Burkett, who's a VPD officer, and he's the president of the Out on Patrol Society. Thanks for being with us today. A big announcement from Dr. Bonnie Henry and Health Minister Adrian Dix when it comes to visitors being allowed at long-term care facilities in B.C. It's not going to go back to the way things were before the pandemic. However, both announcing today that they are easing restrictions that will allow visits to long-term care. Visitors that will go to the facilities, there'll be one visitor per resident. There'll be a designated visitor in that designated area. And there will be many safety protocols to ensure at least as best we can, to make sure that COVID-19 doesn't continue to spread that way. Well, let's bring in Dan Levitt, the CEO of Tabor Village. And Dan, thank you so much for coming back on the program. Oh, it's a pleasure. Uh, how are things going as far as how how things are in the facility where, where you are the CEO and getting ready to allow visitors to come back in? Well, I just listened to the press conference, like everybody else, and uh, some of the details are, are news to um, us in, in the industry, although we've been preparing for this and expecting this announcement. And I can tell you that at uh, Tabor Village, uh, we have uh, two outbreaks, and one was just declared over at Valhaven, which is one of the conditions for, for visitation, is that you can't be in an outbreak. But there are four other sites in BC, and as long as those um, continue to be an outbreak, um, there won't be visitors coming in. So one of them is Tabor Home and we're expecting to be declared over in about two weeks. So we are getting ready for for the um, visitors coming in and uh, looking at kind of ramping up that. And we have been allowing visitors in um, all this time um, for, for essential visits, which is um, anything but normal. But these are visits that were accommodating people um, at end of life. Um, and we try to do it uh, before the person um, is no longer able to communicate so they can um, have, have some final visits. And there are also compassion visits where people have um, come, come in to see um, a loved one if there's been a major life cycle event, perhaps someone in the family got a very serious um, diagnosis or maybe uh, um, a, a new great-grandchild was born. And also families have been seeing each other you know, rarely but um, for a medical appointment where they're taking them. But you know, it's, it's been a very unfortunate situation where it hasn't been safe for elderly, and also um, we need to protect the staff also. So um, it hasn't been the ideal kind of uh, um, environment for visits um, over the past number of months. No, uh, absolutely not. You said that some of the other news that was announced in the news conference this morning was news to you. What else was news to you in the industry? 
Well, I think specifically just the conditions, and I really appreciate um, how how thought out the Ministry of Health has been in BC around um, the policy. I, I think it does make a lot of sense. Um, you can't be in an outbreak; that seems obvious. Um, you have to have a written safety plan, just like other industries, and that is done in consultation with the medical health officer of of the health authority. Um, there will be designated screeners, and I really appreciated um, three FTEs. We're going to work out the numbers and make sure that's enough to cover our our screening stations. We have screeners at Tabor Home, for example, from 5.30 a.m. until 11 p.m. Um, for staff. So I'm, I'm assuming um, it'll be the exact same staff that will be doing the screening uh, for the visitors and appreciate that there's funding made available. That's reassuring um, to see the funding um, coming for the screeners. We were expecting that all the way along. And of course, having a designated uh, family member um, Who's um, who's doing the um, the visitation and looking at different spaces, the the outdoor space and also indoor space, and perhaps even the resident room where it's not practical for um, other resident to go outside. Or and then just thinking about just the logistics of all this, how do you organize um, these visits? Because as um, as the health minister was saying, Adrian Dix was mentioning that previously you would you know, walk into the building. Sometimes there's a code on the buildings. Other times um, you can just walk right in and you would make your way to where where your loved one is. Um, I remember going to see my grandma and not having to go through security. Now you've got to go through security. And how are we going to make sure that the appointments are booked and done safely? So there's lots of things. The PPE, making sure that they're available for people to come in. Um, The booking system, how is that all going to be um, arranged? That's a new system for us to create in a very short period of time. Um, So there's lots of details. And I know our leadership team at Tabor Village and across our industry and BC will be working diligently over the next uh, days and week or so to get this in place because I know families are going to be very anxious. They're going to think they can come in right away and we're going to need some time to prepare ourselves. Did you get the impression too, and they may have addressed this at the news conference, but the single visitor, so it'll be one designated visitor, but I can see a scenario unpl- or playing out where maybe somebody's having a visit with their loved one and how horrible it would be for staff then to have to say to that person, well, you need to leave now because the next there's another visit that are coming in that's going to be visiting with another resident of the, of the care home or the care facility. It just seems that, and you outlined some of the, the, the different, all of these protocols now, it seems like even though we need these measures in place, we understand them, there are going to be some wrinkles along the way. Well, exactly. And I don't think that's really the intention of the policy. And um, as was discussed in the press conference, I think every site will have its own individual uh, plan. And some, some may feel more kind of natural than others, but the, what you described in a, in a single site, a, a small operation, um, there might only be one designated space. Because essentially, if you think about it, um, all these spaces in nursing homes or long-term care and assisted living, they're all designated for a purpose. So now you're taking one of those spaces and you're saying that particular space is now designated just for visitors. And we're probably going to end up putting some kind of partition around it, uh, making sure you can have some kind of uh, privacy for the visit if it's outside. So I'm guessing that we'll probably end up designating um, um, a number of different um, spaces and fig- trying to figure out how to have multiple visits as much as possible at the same time. And Jill, what I thought you were going to ask about was was the, the, the designated visitor. Who's going to be that visitor in the family or the friends? Well, I'm curious about that too, because having had, my sister lived in long-term care, and mm. as much as I would have loved to, if I was in this scenario, and, and I'm thankful that I'm not in the scenario now, because I can't imagine the anxiety people are going through, as much as I would have wanted to be that designated visitor, that comes with now with a huge amount of pressure as well. Well, exactly. And I want to tell you, Jill, about um, our neighbors, um, Ken and Maureen. Um, Maureen, um, for about 10 years, um, had, um, her, you could, as a neighbor, you could see her, her dementia advance. And uh, the day that his 
or that her her husband um, admitted her into a care home about a 10 minute walk from our house. Um, that was a day when the visitor restrictions were implemented. And mm-hmm. today, Jill, is her anniversary. Oh. So, and she had a um, uh, an accident a couple of days ago. She had a fall. Uh, she has um, a hip fracture. So, so Ken has been able to see her in the hospital. But up until now, um, he's basically been able to video conference um, with her while she plays um, the one song she can remember to play on the piano somewhere over the, the rainbow. But she's not communicating. Um, it's a whole different kind of um, um, situation. So um, Ken would probably be that that uh, designated visitor. Um, their son, Mark, um, Pam, is very involved as well, and she probably would want to visit her mom as well. And a little context of, of this uh, story, um, at their wedding 60 years ago today, um, the toast to the bride was given by uh, Tommy Douglas. This is in Saskatchewan, and Maureen's dad was the premier of, uh, of Saskatchewan, uh, Woodrow Lloyd. And of course, while Woodroy Lloyd was premier, our universal health care system was implemented. So it's uh, interesting how people are impacted by, um, by our system. And I think, you know, obviously, there's that balance that we're always thinking about um, in life inside of nursing homes and this is living and even just in the general, um, our general life is the risk and, uh, and our, our tolerance for avoiding risk and also independence and choice. So um, we have to look at, at how do we make sure that these visits can be conducted in the most safe way, uh, making sure we can have human contact where, where possible and, make, and ensuring that other people don't have unintended consequences from, from this new visitation policy. Well, as you've likely heard in the news, the European Union will be reopening its borders to travellers from 14 countries. On the initial list, Canada is one of the 14. Not a huge surprise the United States is not because of the soaring coronavirus infections in the United States. They will have to wait at least two more weeks before another update to that list will be made. Europe's economies are eager to bring tourists back, but to do so in a safe way. So let's bring in Eric Reguli, the Globe and Mail's European Bureau Chief, who joins us in Rome. Eric, thanks so much. A pleasure. What's the feeling there as far as the European Union has agreed to some recommendations that will allow travelers from outside to visit? Canada is on that list. What are you hearing about this on the ground there? Well, it's the the tourism industry in Italy is absolutely thrilled about this. Uh, tourism uh, is such a huge industry in the Mediterranean in general, and in particular is Italy and Greece. Uh, in Italy, its tourism is 13% of GDP. To give you an idea, it's only 2% in Canada. So that's you know it's six or seven times more important to the Italian economy. And last year, I, I don't, sir, I don't have the number of Canadian visitors to the European Union, but last year, more than 16 million Americans alone came to the EU. So, you know, probably well over a million Canadians came to the EU last year, and they're, they're valued. They're big spenders. You know, they're considered, you know, rich tourists, the Canadians and the Americans. So they're, they're really valued here. And when we talk about that, too, is there apprehension or is there concern, do you think, from people in the EU about travelers coming and, and, and perhaps bringing the virus or seeing a spike or another wave of virus? Sure, but uh, the EU was pretty careful on opening up uh, these, these um, countries. Um, it's uh, about a dozen countries. Um, the big ones on there would be Australia, Canada, Japan, 
New Zealand, South Korea, Thailand, uh, even Tunisia is on the list. So um, it, this was not a political decision. I mean, e- the EU does not want to get back in the mess that it was in, in, in March and April. So they're doing a pretty simple test. If the country in question, let's say Canada, if, if their COVID-19 case is falling, uh, that's infections per 100,000. If it's falling to the point where it's actually below the EU average, then you can come in. Now, that explains in an instant why United States, Brazil, Russia weren't allowed. Uh, their travelers are not allowed into the EU and to the Schengen area because their their rates are, are going off the charts. So I, I don't think it was a, a political decision. This is not punishment for the Americans. Believe me, the EU wants they want um, they, they want American travelers here. And I would imagine, like you said, too, it's it's based on the numbers. It's it's a, an equation that's being done. If the numbers start to go in the, the right direction in the States or Brazil or other countries, uh, the door is open or the reevaluation will take place to see when people can safely come into the EU. Uh, yes. And I mean, the important thing, Jill, is to remember that the the um, the EU, this is just a recommendation from the EU. Um, it's country by country. And, um, you know, some countries can say, look, uh, you know, we're, we're not going to allow, um, you know, Canadians in. That's probably not going to happen. But uh, in individual com- uh, countries can stop certain, uh, can stop travelers from, from countries they, they don't feel it's safe for them to come in. And do you get the sense then, are people already in the EU residents, is there still physical distancing taking place or are people still taking precautions as far as COVID-19 goes? Oh, God, yeah, very much so. Um, You know, I mean, life hasn't, at least for for me and my family, life hasn't changed that much here. We have the one meter rules in effect. Uh, In public places, transportation shops, you have to wear a mask. Uh, that's, That's enforced. Uh, that's Italy. I'm not sure. I mean, it varies country by country. But, uh, you know, there's there, restaurants are open, but, you know, no one's going inside. Most of the restaurants uh, that are seeing any business are, are, are on the sidewalk. You know, they have tables outside. So they're, they're still very careful. I mean, what I'm saying is, I mean, I don't think it's going to be a lot of fun if you're a, t- a Canadian tourist coming to Europe at the moment. You know, there's you still got to be ultra careful. Having said that, you know, you're not going to get the crowds you saw last year. So you're going to get, you know, beautiful city centers uh, in uncrowded conditions. But still, there's so many restrictions that I don't see it being a lot of fun. Uh, no, I was thinking that too, even looking at some parts of Europe reopening and when they announced that the Eiffel Tower was reopening, even that seemed a bit strange in that I don't know a lot of Parisians that would spend the day. Maybe they will because people have been cooped up and it's something to do. But that's such a tourist thing to do that you would think to open up a landmark like that would be because you want tourists or you're encouraging tourists to come back. Well, it's a, the Eiffel Tower is a great example. It's it's open, but the elevators aren't open. So if you want to go up, you got to you got to walk. I mean, so I mean that's a, that's a lot of walking. And you know, um, if you're not in great condition, you're not going to want to do. It. I mean, that that's what I mean. The um, I was in Venice uh, a few weeks ago, and I mean Venice is open now too, but to, only to a degree. Like at the at the um, Academia. Uh, uh, gallery, which is some of the finest Renaissance art in the world, is in there. They're only allowing in um, 
several hundred people a day. So I think at any one point there can only be, I'm going to get this number wrong, but more or less 40 or 50 people can be in this huge space at once. Um, so if you can get in, you know, it's great, uh, but you're probably going to have to line up to get in because there's, there's a quota uh, at the door. And, and that really is for people that, uh, like you said, people will be allowed from Canada to go into the EU. But part of the the, the hustle and bustle, I mean, is is generally part of the the trip. And whether it's if you're going to Vatican City, if you're going to these places where they are crowded with tourists, it will be a very different experience. Yeah, but I mean, if you can get here and you're very careful and you're not expecting to to you know whoop it up uh, in, in bars and restaurants and nightclubs. You know, the nightclubs aren't open yet. If, if you, there's a, a type of tourism now that I think would be very appealing, which would be cultural tourism. You imagine, you know, if you've got the energy to line up at the, at the, for the Vatican museums, uh, where they're allowing very few people in at once to go into the Sistine Chapel and be, uh, you know, a couple dozen people as opposed to, I don't know, seven or eight hundred at once. I mean, that that would be magical, you know, to see the the pantheon on the Trevi Fountain. They're open now, but without the crowds, that's magical. It's just, you know, at night, it, it, I think it'd be a bit boring, you know, because you you know you're not going to want to go into restaurants, you're not going to want to go to dance clubs. Well, you can't, you know, right. that sort of thing. But I mean, if you're into the um, the cultural scene, you know, the the galleries, museums, the architecture, I think it'd be wonderful. And you mentioned going to Venice, and last time we talked to you, you had just gotten back from that first kind of venturing out during the pandemic to Venice. Are you noticing, are people getting out more or traveling more or becoming more confident doing that? Yeah, a little bit more, but, you know, there's still very few foreign foreign uh, tourists in Italy. It's uh, What I like about it is it's Italians rediscovering their own country. Hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm sort of in that group. I mean, I, I love going into historic Rome. Now, I live in historic Rome, but, you know, not right in the heart. I mean, I love going and seeing these sites that uh, I just avoided uh, for years because I couldn't stand the crowds. I mean, you got to realize, like, European cities aren't sprawling like North American cities. I mean, they they have pretty small historic centers. The historic center of Rome is 5% of the city. So you've got at any one time, I don't know, a million tourists packed into a very small place, and it can be really hot and unpleasant. But now it's it's great. But I'm just saying that for the right kind of tourists. I mean, if you want to come for a party, forget it. It's going to be really boring if you're here for a party. Well, Eric, we will leave it there. It's always great to chat with you. I'm sure we'll talk about this again uh, coming up in the, the coming weeks. But thank you so much for your time. Okay, thanks a lot. Anytime. Bye-bye. Well, coming up in the final hour of the program today, we are going to check in with the BC Fruit Growers Association. A huge drop in production this year. We're going to find out more about that, what that means for the local fruit we might see or, in this case, might not see in the various stores. The general manager of the BC Fruit Growers Association is going to join us around 2.15 today. And we've got a great story to end the show on as well. But first, First, we want to talk a little bit more about Phase 3, and it seems like every day there are more and more announcements about Phase 3 continuing in the province of BC, which is great news if you look at the numbers and how British Columbians have worked very hard to flatten the curve. Just before we get to our next guest, though, talking about some areas of the province that perhaps are not 
already in that stage of welcoming people from around BC. I did want to play for you this one call to the buzz line. And if you were listening earlier, you heard Carol from Abbotsford and she talked about the fact she had gone into some stores and she didn't see any sanitizing. She didn't see people distancing. Nobody was really paying attention to the arrows on the ground. Well, it seems like a lot of callers or a lot of listeners, sorry, heard Carol talk about that and agree with her. I have to agree with her. Uh, I've been in many bigger outfits. Um, I haven't even been into a Freshco out here or a Superstore or the Walmart she referred to for just for the reason she was dating because uh, I can just tell when I walk in a store with my mask, of course, how comfortable I feel based on what I'm seeing they're doing to keep the hygiene uh, where it should be. And not to mention that Nobody's policing the arrows on the floor. I can't tell you how many times I've had to point out to people to the arrow on the floor, follow protocol, and nobody's policing it in the store either. All right, just to one of the calls in support of Carol's call earlier saying, yeah, they've noticed at some stores as well. Some stores doing a great job, others don't really appear to be following the rules. Let's talk a bit more about traveling and phase three and this idea of staycations and exploring different parts of British Columbia this summer. Well, the Nahawk Nation is asking people at this point at least to not come to that part of BC, the Nahawk Territory. You might know it better as Bella Coola, with members of that nation meeting today and saying that it is not a typical summer and they are going to continue to ask people not to come to that part of the province. And joining me on the line to talk a little bit more about this is Noel Putlas, a head hereditary chief with the Nahawk Nation. And I think Mike Talia was with us as well, a head hereditary chief with the nation. Thanks so much for you both for talking with us today. You're welcome. Thank you. Um, I'm not sure who wants to start. Maybe, Noel, if I can start with you. Uh, you, the, the leadership and the council met today. What are the main concerns about people coming to that part of BC? Well, our main concern is uh, to, for the safety of the valley and our village is uh, protection from COVID-19. And have you been able to, at this point, to get that message out and make sure people know that as far as tourism, tourists really aren't welcome at this point? Yes, we have. We've, we have certain uh, signs up, and we also put it on different uh, social media um, sites, like in Williams Lake and different areas, and we share that our concerns that... Uh, we want to keep our our valley safe. Do you have any cases of COVID-19 or have you had COVID-19? No, we have none. But if there was an outbreak, it would be devastating. Right. I mean, I would imagine it would it would likely spread very quickly and, and people then would be scrambling, to say the least, I would imagine, to get medical help. Yeah, we're... Uh, 20 times uh, more vulnerable than, than Caucasian because we, our immune system, our genes are, are not uh, strong. And that's why we um, want to protect ourselves as First Nations. 
And Mike, I want to bring you in on the conversation as well. Uh, the numbers, is it, so what, from what I understand, the population usually doubles in that region in the summertime to about 5,000 people. How much, I mean, I think people understand that it's about safety and it's about making sure that there is no COVID-19 that, that arrives there, but that's got to be difficult, not, not uh, encouraging tourists or, or welcoming tourists. Yes, it is very difficult. You know, at this time, we um, any other year we'll welcome people with open arms, but this year, it's a, because of the pandemic, we're trying to keep the limited amount of people coming into our valley, and uh, just to help uh, um, protect us from the virus. Uh, I understand. Uh, so you have an information checkpoint right now at Highway 20 to monitor traffic of people that are coming and going. What what kind of powers does that checkpoint have, or or what would happen in a scenario where somebody said thank you very much and continued on their way, or continued coming into the territory? Uh, for the most part, the checkpoint is uh, just to kind of track and keep information on who's coming and going in case of an outbreak. We were able to track it, but uh, uh, a lot of the people are very polite. Uh, we've had a, a few occasions there where uh, there's uh, been some people with aggressive driving, uh, rude language, and threatening to spit on our, our frontline workers and spread the virus, claiming they had the COVID-19. Oh, that's, uh, and, and in that case, then, are, did, did they step away and let them go, or what happened? Yeah, so they just let them go. They take their license plate, and then uh, we bring it to the RCMP. Hmm. Um, do you anticipate then at this point uh, how long, or are you assessing it, say, monthly, or how long do you anticipate before you'll reassess or that there might be uh, some limited access or, or that you might be open to having tourists? Yeah, we're planning to uh, reassess it on um, July 21st again just to uh, see how the um, curve stays uh, from now until then, on, well, phase three is on. Right. And, and how is the community doing then as well as, as being rather isolated and not having kind of that, that expansion of people and, and, and the tourism that, that you would normally have? Well, um, right now our concern is... Uh, we have a, if we have an influx of a lot of people, we don't even have enough supplies in our stores. Our stores have run low on certain items, produce and meat and other other necessities, and we're limited. And we can't because uh, of the COVID-19. There's uh, the stocks, and uh, it's hard to keep up with um, orders. Uh, because the factories aren't really functioning 100%. Right. Well, all right. Well, we'll leave it there. But thank you so much, both of you, for being uh, available today. And uh, hopefully things uh, remain uh, COVID-free in the territory and, and things will get better as we get into the summer. But appreciate your time so much, both of you. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank 